The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 26th, 2016. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. And I have to tell you, I had amazing insight into the George Pataki endorsement of Marco Rubio, how much of the needle this would move, would that needle be found in the political haystack that is George Pataki's future, but then there was breaking news, Abe Vigoda has died. Now, if you don't know Abe Vigoda from Fish or Barney Miller, you probably know him from being the celebrity who people keep saying has died, but this time he really has died. I want to take you back to clearly his best role. He played a capo regime under the Don. He played Tessio, Sal Tessio. And here, in his last scene in The Godfather, he tries to get out of what he surmises correctly to be an assassination. He appeals to Tom Hagen, and we'll hear what he says. Tom, can you get me off the hook? For old time's sake. Back then, you have to realize that a plea for old time's sake, it, it held a lot of sway. People would often give you allowances, give some leeway once you appeal to for old time's sake. You want to know why? Because remember, we're talking about pretty long time ago. The Godfather was set in post-war period. And for old time's sake, it was a lot closer to the time period then. People remembered for old time's sake. You think I'm kidding. But I think if we say now, come on, for old time's sake, or it's like an old timey, which I don't like saying old timey. But if we say old timey, we pretty much evoke a newsreel, maybe flappers. And I think it was the same period that it evoked then. It evoked the war. Yeah. Still the same, old time, much better. People would do things for old time's sake back then. I could make another point through the prism of fish, through the prism of Abe Vigoda, that age has become something totally different in our society. Well, first of all, he starred in this sitcom called Barney Miller. And Barney Miller was the brownest show on the history of television. I don't mean the composition of the cast, though Ron Glass was a member. I mean, just the, the tone, the palette. It was brown. It was the brownest of browns. It was the bourbon of shows. There's more brightness and light in 12 minutes of Friends than there were in the entire course of Barney Miller. And then Abe Vigoda got a spinoff of Barney Miller, and it was called Fish. I will play you a clip from Fish. Yeah, hmm? I kissed you. I know. Don't you want to kiss me back? Let's control ourselves. This is not our anniversary. <laughs> I remember a time when you used to show me a lot of affection. Well, that was during the war. <laughs> Everybody got scared. That was with his wife, Bernice. And that really shows the triumph of acting over material. I got a little laugh during the war. Like I said, everyone was scared. Now, I'm going to read you an article about uh, Abe Vigoda getting this show. Here it is. It was written by uh, Jay Charbot, the AP television writer at the time, and it appeared in the uh, it appeared in the February 4th edition of newspapers across America. Having kids around will make you feel young again, says Bernice, wife of Detective Fish. The door old cop replies, I don't want to be young again. I was young once and I wasn't good at it. Thus will veteran actor Abe Vigoda, 
who has become to ancients what the Fonz is to teeny boppers, check in Saturday night in his new home and his new ABC series, Fish, a spinoff of Barney Miller. All right, remember, that was written in 1977, and Abe Vigoda was old, door, talks about being young once. In 1977, that was 39 years ago. Abe Vigoda has been an old, broken-down man for 39 years. Now, 39 years ago, Abe Vigoda was 94 years old. So 39 years ago, Abe Vigoda was 55. Do you know who else is 55? What actor is 55 now in the news with a new series? David Duchovny is the same age as Fish was when Fish was on Barney Miller. Uh, you have a further mind blow. Mark Harmon, who I don't really know, but always top surveys as a guy on TV that everyone knows. He's 64 years old. So age has changed and Fish epitomizes this more than anyone. Fish lived in my neighborhood. I should say Abe Vigoda lived in my neighborhood. I would see him walking about. He would dine in a cafe with a glassed-in enclosure, and I dubbed that the Vagodarium. No, it, it didn't really take off. And also, he was a Jewish gentleman who frequently played Italians, not as Phil Fish, but there as Tessio. And I was recently talking with Paul Giamatti, an Italian man frequently cast as a Jew. I was talking Vagoda with Giamatti. It all comes full circle. Bernice Fish will be missed. On the show today, I spiel about, but really against, Iowa. Okay, State, terrible date. But first... He's playing supervillain Lex Luthor in the new superhero movie Batman vs. Superman. And he was, of course, nominated for an acting Oscar, not for a superhero or a supervillain, but for the super ambivalent Mark Zuckerberg, which gives me an idea for a character, just super ambivalent figures. Maybe the superpower is the ability to inspire ambivalence. You saved our town from a dangerous gang, but allowed gentrification afterwards. That super ambivalent man. Anyway, crazy idea, right? Here's Jesse Eisenberg, actor, yeah, sure. But for our purposes, funny writing guy. To wit. Jesse Eisenberg, the playwright and author, is out with a new collection of short stories, Bream Gives Me Hiccups and Other Stories. We're going to talk to him about that and about the fact that he's also named after that famous actor guy. Wait a minute. He is the actor guy. Hello, Jesse. How are you? Hi, great. Thanks, Mike. Bream is a funny word. Yes, it is. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Yes. And in fact, it's so funny you put it on the cover, but is it actually in the book? No, no. Yeah. I just I wanted people to judge the book by its cover uh, positively. So I had an entirely inaccurate cover drawn. Um, yeah, it's a funny word. It's a controversial word I've discovered because it's pronounced differently depending on if you're from the Union or Confederacy. OK, so I heard you on the Diane Reem show where this came up. Sure. Or the Diane Rim show, maybe. <laughs> Here's an email from Nick who says... The fish bream is universally spoken brim. But I thought, well, that's like someone saying it's not pronounced creek, it's pronounced crick. Wait, you mean like a water, body of water? Yeah. You know, in the South, they say it's a crick. Oh, I see. I I see. I think that when something's spelled B-R-E-A-M. Yes. And famous baseball player Sid Bream led the way on this, that we must pronounce it Bream. Yes, except I think I gave that guy a a creak in his shoulder from his (laughs) anger. (laughs) Yeah, creak in the neck. 
And the reason it's called Bream Gives Me Hiccups is the person saying that is a uh, nine-year-old restaurant reviewer. Yeah, that's right. So when I heard or when I read the chapter title, which uh, promised me a nine-year-old restaurant reviewer, I kind of braced myself because I thought it was going to be one of these kids who will say, I don't like the mouthfeel of this or who will actually critique based on a place of information. I find a nine-year-old doing that really obnoxious. Yes, me too. And that was my initial idea with writing this. So wouldn't it be funny to have a kind of nine-year-old restaurant critic evaluating food that he should not be allowed to have purchased. And then once I started writing it, I realized, oh, no, this actually should be a real character with real <laughs> thoughts and a worldview that, uh, you know, kind of supersedes my own profound worldview, which is limited. Yeah. And the kind of kid who really won't like super fancy food and really will like uh, Nat- Museum of Natural History dinosaur nuggets. That's exactly right. Yeah, which is true. So I actually I saw I went to um, uh, Nobu Malibu, which is a fancy restaurant, obviously, in uh, in California on a date with my girlfriend. It was an anniversary. It was a big date for us and there was kids sitting next to us at the next table and the little girl was asking her mother mom do I like kamachi and the mom was saying no honey you don't like kamachi she's saying do I like tamago oh she said yes that is that's a, it's egg you like that one and I just thought oh that's that seems odd uh, where do they go from that here? context yeah. yes and then on the other hand I grew up going to Chi-Chi's which was the local Mexican restaurant and I imagine that you know there were some kids who never got to go to a restaurant so I imagine it's all relative but didn't they serve chips in a sombrero at Chi-Chi's I the ridge th- of the sombrero <laughs> yes, was and that? then the dip was in the uh-huh. was in the head part. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So what you're saying, I get a pass. No, I'm saying it was an upscale restaurant. That to me no. is upscale. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. What did where did, what, <laughs> where did they the serve sombrero. your chips as a child? Uh, they served it in the hamachi. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> within oh, the I see. Uh, so this we should say that it's not just a gag. I thought. I was very happy to read kind of seven restaurant reviews written by a little kid, but it adds up to a novella, essentially. Yeah. There's an arc. That's right. The, we find out about the kid's relationship with the mother, and we find out about take and observations. And so it strikes me that that's a challenge for a writer because you want to observe things, but you also right. have to make the observations authentic as coming from a nine-year-old. Yeah, that's right. But I think what I discovered was that not only could I find his worldview to present an authentic adult world, but actually in some way it was more insightful because he is seeing through the hypocrisies that adults have all agreed upon to get through the day. Yeah, it's it's more pure. It's less sullied. It's an emperor's new clothes thing. They, they're, they're literally not seeing a lot of the window dressing. They're just going right to the quintessence <laughs> of, say a lie or hypocrisy. Kids notice hypocrisies. They don't even, because they don't see around the hypocrisy. That's right. In fact, he even says something along the lines of, kids think more like themselves because they haven't spent so much time with other people. Yeah. These are the dangers of being habituated. Yes, exactly. So I also notice most of, there are a few towards the back that this is not true of, but almost all of the essays and short stories and just bits of whimsy in this collection are uh, what we'd call third person. But more than that, it's not just that it doesn't say I, they're they're speak they're second person actually they're speaking to an intended audience right. their dialogue right. and even when they're epistolary like Harper Jablonski great name I'll get back to that when Harper Jablonski is writing letters you know it's all like dialogue or some version of dialogue meant to have an impact on the audience and I couldn't help but thinking oh well all of your past writing I think that's been published is plays and so I wonder mm-hmm. if that was a coincidence. Yeah um, I found in college and in short story classes that I don't describe sunsets well but I do write dialogue well I can I really enjoy kind of writing an interior monologue uh, rather than you know a description of something uh, omnisciently um, I'd rather describe a person kind of uh, 
being annoyed by a sunset because it's making their face itch because they haven't been out in the sun than describing the orange hues that are, uh, you know, being emitted. Uh, I just don't do that well. So when we talk about uh, dialogue, is the dialogue that's presented here, which is good, and the dialogue that you'd write for a stage show versus the dialogue, so one versus two versus three, which is movie dialogue, there are different things we'd call great dialogue, but I think they'd be they'd all be really different. Not just length, but the thing we call great dialogue in a movie and the thing we'd say, oh, it reads like real life dialogue in a book are <laughs> totally different. Oh, that's very interesting. And I suppose that has to do with when we uh, are referring to dialogue in a movie, it's usually being uh, filtered through an actor's performance. Yeah. And a lot of times the success of that dialogue or failure has to do with the actor's presentation of it. Absolutely. Whereas uh, dialogue in uh, uh, just an, a, a red document, I suppose, lives and dies on its construction within the, 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 the page. I'm sure you've had this happened to you a hundred times more than I have, but I remember I read Paul Newman's scene, Final Address to the Jury and the Verdict. I read it on the page in a monologue book for young actors, actually. Mm -hmm. Like, this is great. And Mm -hmm. I performed it. And I performed it. Yeah, I'm telling you how I performed this. But anyway, I performed it as I I imagined, like, impassioned lawyer would perform it. And I pounded my fist. And I think I got the role of (laughs) Captain Hook in uh, Peter Pan. (laughs) And then I saw the actual movie. And it's totally different, and he's totally defeated. Uh, and you're like, wow, those are two totally different bits of dialogue. Let me ask, did you prefer his take on it? Well, you know, I didn't really understand the whole character arc, and I can't say I'm better. I mean, I was better as HUD, and I was better as Cool Hand Luke, sure. but he was better as Frank, the attorney. As that role. Yeah. It's ironic that he actually played those roles then. You know, it almost seems like <laughs> like what was lost yeah. in your absence. It is it is odd. I do have a spreadsheet of roles that Newman was better than me and roles that I was better <laughs> right. than Newman. And it's 50-50 right now. Is there any kind of a Venn diagram presentation of it where there's an overlap? Mm-hmm. What? We're both excellent at salad dressing. <laughs> we keep it simple. Right, right, yeah, right. Exactly. All the proceeds he's go to much, charity, I hope. He's much better. His due. That's fine. Okay, right. I, I have my brand of Mike Pesca's Paul Newman salad dressing. Right, with yeah. all proceeds go to your own coffers. Yeah, right. It gets yeah. fun- funneled through a uh, third agency. Did you did you go to college? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. went for anthropology, though. Yeah? Yeah. Your mom's an anthropologist of some sort. Oh, right. no. No, close. She was a birthday party clown. Right, right. Yeah, but, yeah. Then, but now she's getting a doctorate. No, oh, yeah, in, yeah she yes. is. Yeah, very good. Yes, that is true. Yeah, my mom's uh, she's getting a doctorate in medical, medical humanities. Medi- medical humanities. Close. But it also would seem to me that you're simultaneously in the world of acting, but also in the world of observing. And we know <laughs> that actors are supposed to be observers, but when you're, when you're remembering the lines and saying the lines and doing the business, how much observing can you be doing? So yeah. this is the book of an observer. This is the book of an anthropologist. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what I liked about kind of my studies in college was, you, you know, I was, you know, as an actor in acting class, you're kind of really uh, doing a lot of performing and a lot of self-analysis. You know, what roles can I play? How can I change myself to play this role that I probably wouldn't play in the real world, but that I can play in acting class. And in, uh, you know, with what, with what I studied, your own performance, you know, you're only considering your own place in the world in relation to other cultures or, uh, you know, other places. And before I was uh, an actor who got noticed on the street, I would spend a lot of my time follow, you know, over eavesdropping. Uh, I can't do that as easily or as readily now, but that was my favorite thing to do. That must suck being noticed all the time. It sucks if you're interested in eavesdropping. It doesn't suck if you're interested in asking people about themselves, which is what I do. So when I meet people, I get to find out and ask them kind of invasive questions because they've already 
burdened me with, rec- you know, with asking me something so I can turn the tables and I can ask them about themselves. So it actually provides this unusual window into getting to interact with somebody who is otherwise a stranger. But do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Well, I guess like anybody else, it depends on the context. But I'm really extroverted when I'm alone at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you, I guess classic definition, if you're at a social event with people you don't know, does it sap your power or does it sap your energy or does it give you energy? I don't know. I'm also in this very weird position where I'm very rarely in a position where I don't know the people because people feel like they know me by virtue of being in mainstream things. Yeah. And so it's kind of like the it's like a universal icebreaker in a way. Do people feel they know you as Zuckerberg first and then everything else second? Do they feel they know you Since as... Since I was born, that's how people have <laughs> yeah, been exactly. kind of re- yeah, referring to me, which is then strange because I actually made a movie about that guy. and The role uh, he was born to play. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also, he's a uh, bald, multi-billionaire, super genius, evil guy. That's the other thing they always said about you. When I was first born, I was you were in fact one bald. of those things. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. I want to ask you about... This is what I wanted to ask you about the social network in Zuckerberg because... I think you were great in that, and of course the guy you were playing, I've heard in interviews you say, well, the real guy, and it's not you. Obviously it's not you. He's a jumping off point for some ideas about the character, ideas that Aaron Sorkin fleshed out in a great way, ideas that you filled up with how you played it, and yet isn't there a value, this is what I don't know the answer to, there is a value to the fact that we really did use his name, and there is a little bit of extra excitement when you say based on a true story. And I just interviewed the actors from uh, Spotlight, and they said, you know, one of the great things about Ruffalo is he really got the real guy's mannerisms. Right. So on the one hand, the the verisimilitude is something we prize. But on the other hand, the fact that it's so not real is something we should not only accept, but have find a value in there. Right. I mean, I have no question, but no, I know you've thought about that. I thought about it a lot. And I think like accuracy is great insofar as it supports the tone or the story or the texture of the piece. I think one of the ways we engage with fiction is relating it to uh, real life. It's this thing that Hollywood, I think, does well a lot, but it's a trick, which is that it gives you the illusion that you're learning something important. So you're not just wasting the two hours that it'll somehow inform a real world thing you're going to discuss. Yeah. And I think the discussion we have about that is a little bit of a stunted discussion, which is, hey, come on, it's Hollywood. They have to they have to take some shortcuts. But when they don't take shortcuts or when it's so accurate, then that becomes this breath of fresh air. Well, well, <laughs> well then what does that say about Selma and all the excuses we gave about how LBJ was portrayed in Selma? Right. Yeah. I just always think I hope they don't make anything about me. And uh, <laughs> because I can't imagine even if the most kind of accurate depiction or the most, uh, you know, honorable or nobly intended depiction of a person it still must be very uncomfortable for the people that are being uh, depicted. Yeah. Tell me about the thing with Marv Albert, because I remember reading it in The New Yorker. I was just, I love Marv Albert. I've grown up with Marv Albert. And I was just thinking this guy would be the worst therapist because (laughs) all of his utterances are the opposite of... They're funny, but they're not sympathetic, you know, out of bounds. And just these things that seem they're just it's the exact opposite context of therapy, which is the kind of quiet, contemplative nodding and understanding and, you know, commiseration. And so I just thought, oh, that's a kind of funny juxtaposition, a therapy context. All right. I was thinking that the worst, the actual worst broadcaster as a therapist would be any football broadcaster, because at least Marv Albert doesn't use the word basketball in his catchphrases, where in football, it's always about protecting the football and (laughs) 
moving the football down the field. <laughs> and I don't know what the yeah. therapy version of that, you know, psyche, you got to protect the psyche. You got Like once you start explicitly referencing your brain in therapy, I don't think therapy could work. I don't know, but I don't think it could work. That's right. Yeah, that's right. right. It's funny. I, I do. They, so I listen to your podcast uh-huh. every day. I also listen to a podcast called The Starters, these NBA, the guys yes. that talk about the NBA. And I like them too. Um, and I was actually listening to them today. And whenever they want to make a declarative statement to kind of finalize or create a thesis around their discussion, they will use the word basketball player. He really is, though, just a great basketball player. You know, they have to kind of, it's, it's a basketball part. It's a bas- basketball, they can't, they're only discussing basketball players. And then <laughs> they have to make the distinction of what his sport is. Yeah, that would be good for other, hi, welcome to NPR Politics, where we talk about politician. Let's talk about politician Jeb Bush. And then polit- he's going up against politician uh, Marco Rubio, who really knows how to play the game of politics. You know, Marco Rubio is just a really good Republican politician He's a politics. good Republican, if you want a Republican politician, you look no better, look no further than Marco Rubio. All right. Jesse Eisenberg is an Academy Award-nominated actor. I mean, okay. You're lucky to be nominated, but I just read it because it's the first thing in your bio. Right, okay. Like, it references the thing you didn't win. Everything else that I'm going to reference is an accomplishment. Great successes. Yeah, and then the thing you didn't win. I I was going to put as a second-place Academy (laughs) Award-winning actor. (laughs) Right. Yes. He was in the final four. What if we glom, what if we took that (laughs) construct and put it with acting? Right. He was in the final four of acting one year. Actors, uh, acting is a kind of uh, uh, notoriously self-aggrandizing profession. Uh, We never, all things are wins. Yeah. Yes. Except when they see the faces. (laughs) He is the author of three plays, and his new collection is Bream Gives Me Hiccups and Other Stories. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Thanks a lot, Mike. So we asked some just listeners about websites that they might be working on, and one was provided by Stephen R. Fox and the website. Well, maybe I shouldn't give it out here. But anyway, it's very much like a website that would be owned by someone named StephenRFox.com. There's a nice little tab that says hello there. I clicked on the tab. There's a resume. And there are some samples of what he could do. Very simple, but it's really clean. If I was looking to hire a guy like Stephen R. Fox, not even a guy like Stephen R. Fox, who does the stuff that Stephen R. Fox does, like is a communications specialist. Yeah, this is a great advertisement for Stephen R. Fox and in a roundabout way, a very good advertisement for Squarespace because Squarespace looks professional. It really does. It doesn't matter what the skill level of the person using it is. There's no coding required. Easy to use tools, very intuitive. And if you sign up now, you get a free domain for a year. So start your free trial today at stephenrfox.com. No, wait, at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful, like Stephen R. Fox did. And now the spiel. A fortnight until Iowa. It's six more days until Iowa. Have you heard that? Have you seen that on the crawl on the bottom of cable news? We've been hearing it on TV. On Sunday, it was... Right now with eight days to go. Then yesterday, it was... So we only have seven days left until the Iowa caucuses. And now, right on the bottom of NBC, six days until Iowa. Because Iowa's a date. It's not just a place. Listen, 
I'll get back to you next Iowa. Wait, wait, wait. My calendar's full. I can't do it in an Iowa. How about two New Hampshire's and a Guam? Or is that too long? So six days until Iowa, even though Iowa's been here 170 years. But of course, we're talking about the caucuses. That exercise and democracy being exercised. They're less than a week away. Or as NBC's Pete Alexander explains it. The candidates kicking off the final sprint to the starting line. The final sprint to the starting line, as Usain Bolt will tell you, that is a very poor strategy to win the race. Of course, there are other things poor Pete Alexander is made to say in his job of covering the Republicans for NBC that are much crazier than sprinting to the starting line. The NBC News Survey Monkey Weekly online tracking poll. The Survey Monkey Weekly. There is an actual, I've been to NBC, I've done some TV show there. There is an actual survey monkey. He wanders the hall. He's a well-trained capuchin. He both discerns public opinion and flings feces within a fairly tight margin of error. The thing about surveying your monkey weekly, they are a fickle beast. I would survey my monkey daily, though your monkey may differ. Survey monkey. It's like a Peyton Manning audible at the line. Survey! Survey monkey! Survey monkey weekly! Omaha! Omaha! Brilliantly, he checked out of a run play and optioned into an isolation play using his prehensile tail and simian strength with that survey monkey. Okay, I've da- I have officially now gone down a survey monkey weekly hole and forgotten the important thing. The important thing is Iowa, the first true exercise in democracy. If by democracy you mean only 20% of the electorate participating and it doesn't allow for the participation of the housebound, the hospitalized, were the merely employed at night. Now realize this, whenever you hear a candidate in Iowa talking about the hardworking men and women of Iowa who are working the night shift, who may have taken two jobs, or the working mom waiting tables so her kids can have a place to sleep, all of those people cannot participate in the vote. They can't go to an Iowa caucus because it's at night and we don't care. And there are no absentee ballots. Furthermore, the Iowa caucuses violate the principle of one person, one vote. Well, so does the Senate which is where four of the five front runners have been or are employed. Okay, but in Iowa, so Bernie Sanders, he has a lot of support among college kids. Here's Kathy Obradovich, political columnist of the Des Moines Register. What we saw in 2008 has uh, a lot of similarities to what we're seeing this this time. Uh, Bernie Sanders is... Uh, is doing very well with first-time caucus goers, with people who are identified as independent voters, and and also with young people, uh, caucus goers under 45. This is exactly the same coalition that Barack Obama Obama beat Hillary Clinton with in 2008. So the Sanders coalition looks like the Obama coalition, which beat Clinton eight years ago. Nationally, it does not look like that, by the way. This year, the Clinton coalition has a lot of African-Americans, much more than the Sanders coalition. So she lost because of the black vote in 2008. She'll probably win because of the black vote in 2016. Anyway, my point here is about the rules. The young people who back Bernie Sanders are different from the young people who back Barack Obama. Not because they're different, not because college is different, but because of when the caucuses were scheduled. So back in 2008, the colleges were on break. So all these college kids went to their home districts and caucused for Obama there. Ah, But this year, school's in session. And if you look at where Sanders is strong, Blackhawk County, Johnson County, and Story County, those are homes to Northern Iowa, University of Iowa, and Iowa State, respectively. So in those counties, Bernie is crushing Hillary. So fine, you're saying, so he'll clean up in certain counties and not others. So what's it matter? I mean, that's how, that's how elections work, right? Democrats play well in cities, Republicans do well in the country. No, 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 no. Because in Iowa, votes 
don't rely on voters. It's not actually about people voting. It's about counting the delegate equivalents. And candidates wind up maxing out in a county and they can't gain any more. So even if Bernie Sanders actually has the same number of people as Hillary Clinton, it could turn out that since all his people are concentrated in these few counties, Hillary Clinton will wind up winning Iowa. And by the way, there is no winning Iowa. It's all proportional anyway. This is why the Iowa caucuses are dumb, flawed. They're demographically dumb. They're democratically dumb. They're demonstrably dumb. Santorum, Huckabee. Yes, there's more complex math demonstrating the negative correlation for Republicans and winning the Iowa caucuses. But if I just say Santorum and Huckabee, that pretty much demonstrates the dumbness thereof. No? Yes. All right. Maybe here's the question. Why is Bernie Sanders successful with the kids? I have a theory. This is Mad Rhymes. It was a CNN town hall thing in Iowa last night, and I think Bernie Sanders was laying down a diss track. Here, check it out. The war in Iraq. Okay, that's the fact. The war in Iraq, that's a fact. That might be coincidence, but like 20 seconds later, same answer. He says this. Hillary Clinton voted for the war. She was for the war. Doesn't help the poor. Tell the millionaires and billionaires I'm laying down the law. See, here's what I think is going on. You know how all the candidates put out on YouTube all this B-roll of just them walking in a field and with their family because they can't coordinate with PACs, but the PACs know this footage is out there and they'll cut an ad with the stuff that's publicly available? I think Bernie Sanders is just throwing rhymes into the universe and he knows that people are going to be crafting this into rap, right? Somewhere Killer Mike is taking notes saying, I could work, okay, I could work with For the War, but I got this, I got half a rhyme about the haves and the have-nots. In which billionaires compete as to the size of their super yachts. And there you have it. Bernie Sanders drops the mic. And that's it for today's show. Andrew Slenzi, just producer, got mad. He hit Bruno Tatalia at 4 o'clock this morning. Tell Steve Lichtai it was only business. His business as executive producer of Slate Podcasts. I always liked him. They want to arrange a meeting between me and Barzini on Andy Bowers' ground, where I'll be safe. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. I always thought it would be Pesca. Nah, it's the smart move. Andy Bowers was always smarter. I want to thank Miles Dornboss for recording this session. Miles, did I pronounce your name? You did. I did. I pronounced his name right. How'd you hold it together, Miles? How didn't you crack? This close. He was this close. The gist, Bernice. Umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.